Okay, here we are. We're ready to talk about the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 12 this week for uh, the official chat about a chapter. <clears throat> and we are working in the final week of Jesus' life here on this earth. Um, it is, uh, from best we can tell, this is the Monday of the final week of His time here on this earth. And Jesus has come... To the temple. We normally don't like to backtrack uh, in these chapter chats, but it is worth kind of getting our place and getting our bearings and recognizing where we are. Look back in chapter 11 and in verse 27, Jesus came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, and that then leads to the discussion that closed chapter 11 where they asked him, you know, who gives you the authority to do these things? And Jesus concludes uh, with his question and says, then I'm not going to tell you the authority by which I do these things. Um, but he continues talking. So he's in the temple, and actually it's worth just kind of maybe scanning ahead and noticing verse 35, Jesus taught in the temple. Verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. That would have been across from the temple. And then chapter 13, verse 1, as he came out of the temple. All of that is to say is that everything that happens in chapter 12 is at the temple. Yeah. This is uh, some temple happenings. This is, in many ways, uh, a showdown that is going to take place here at the temple. And we talked a little bit about the temple already last week, um, but now here's just a series of different events and conversations and discussions and, um, well, confrontations that happen uh, in the temple. So let's read a little bit. Jesus began to speak to them, and that would be the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower, and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, that is, they took the servant, and they beat him. They sent him away empty-handed. And he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. Let's just stop right there and let's uh, try to put together some of the pieces to this parable. Let's talk about who is who. We certainly always want to be careful with parables. We don't want to make something out of everything. We don't want to, you know, for example, let's not make something out of this tower. What is the wine press? What's the wine press? And, and all of these different things. But, but the characters here do represent someone, and even the vineyard itself does represent uh, someone or something. Uh, so let's talk about that. The, the man or the master here uh, is obviously representative of who? That's God the Father. This would be the Lord, definitely. Um, and that seems to be the common theme in a lot of the other parables where you have a master. Well, it's pretty clear that's talking about, talking about God. Then we have uh, these various servants that he sends to come back and to check on the vineyard. Uh, who, who are these people representative of? Those are the prophets. Yeah, the various prophets that we read about in the Old Testament. That would be guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah who come to, uh, to check on things. And they're coming to check on, on this vineyard. Now the vineyard would represent what or who? The vineyard, that's going to be the people of God and the things therein. Yeah, it would represent God's people, yes, and the nation of Israel especially. Uh, and that's very fitting, and I think folks hearing this parable would have got that immediately, especially since there are specific Old Testament passages like Isaiah chapter 5 that talk about Israel as a vineyard. Um, and so, all right, so you got these guys that are coming back to check on the vineyard, but you have these tenants. These people that have been, you know, the, the vineyard has been leased to them, so to speak. Who are the tenants here? Mm, the tenants? I'm not sure. The tenants, I believe, are representative of the very people that Jesus is talking to. The Pharisees and whatnot? The Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So, These are the people who are the supposed leaders. They ought to be the ones that are taking care of God's people. They so ought to be leading them. All the religious elite in that time. Yes, okay. yes. Those who had, uh, who were in those positions of people looked at them as being you know, very influential. They had the knowledge of the, of the Old Testament law. Um, these are the folks that God had entrusted uh, His people to. Yeah. And over and over again, we find that those leaders had failed. 
And so when God then sends His various servants, these prophets, uh, these messengers to say, hey, what, what's going on here? Things that, that, The vineyard's not yielding fruit. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about that last week in chapter 11. Um, Isaiah and Jeremiah especially uh, had to come and deliver that message. Hey, God, God's vineyard's not bearing any fruit. What's What's the deal? That you need to get yeah. it turned around. Need to repent. And it can't be the seed's fault because that's God's word. That's exactly right. So not, it can't not the fault the, of the seed. Yeah, it's the uh, it's an issue with the people who are uh, who've been entrusted with taking care of things, and they had not. And so instead of yielding and submitting and repenting when these messengers came, what they do? Well, they got angry and they mistreated God's messengers. They would beat them. They would, you know, in the case of Jeremiah, threw him down in the bottom of a pit. Yeah. Um, and in some, would even kill. Um, and remember, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and verse 30. Uh, and he points out that they think uh, that they would never have, if the prophets were there in their day, that they would never have mistreated them like the, the religious leaders of old did. Mm -hmm. And Jesus rebukes them, essentially saying, yes, you would. You, yeah, you would. Uh, you did. You have a track record. Yeah. Um, and and Jesus is, ironically, they are persecuting Jesus, who, again, is a comes, prophet. Comes in that same vein. Yeah. Yep. So, John the Baptist, of course, you'd, you'd have to throw him into this mix as well. Uh, of you know that he was even though he had people who who did listen to his message and followed him, uh, he was still largely rejected by uh, many of these uh, the, the religious establishment, so to speak. The, the parable doesn't stop there. Verse six is where the the tension in the story mounts. But he, the master, he still had one other, a beloved son, and so finally he sent him to them, saying, "They'll respect my son." Hmm. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Here's Jesus' question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, here's the answer. He will come and destroy the tenants, and he will give that vineyard to others. Yeah. And so Jesus, of course, is the beloved son here. Uh, that's yeah. an easy uh, catch. Um, and the, the message is loud and clear. Uh, I'm going to, this is what they're going to do to me. I am going to be killed. Yeah. And they're going to do that thinking that uh, things are going to be well for us and that way we can still maintain our power and so forth. No, the master says he's going to remove it from your hands and he's going to then give that to others. And I think that's an allusion to the fact that the gospel would be given uh, and granted to the Gentiles. It would be opened up to all people, not just to the Jews and not just to this limited number of people. God's going to make it available to everybody. Yeah, and not only that, but the the gospel, I think that also, that does have to do with the opening up of the gospel to the Gentiles, but I don't think we can limit the meaning just to that. I mean, essentially these guys... And, and the religious world is going to be turned on its head. So uh, folks like the Pharisees are not going to be able to give and be, obtain any position of leadership in God's kingdom because it's going to be upside down, right? So yeah. the, the servants are going to be the, one that lead, the ones that lead. So the, the others that the kingdom is going to be given to is going to include uh, Jewish people too, like uh, you know Peter uh, and, and all the other apostles who, who preach on those uh, on the day of Pentecost later on, that's get, they're going to be leading the next uh, religious movement. Right, right. So. Um, well, it, all of this is to say, this, is a, this parable is designed to be yeah. a clear rebuke of the people that he's talking to directly. Oh, certainly. These, these, the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders that are mentioned back in chapter 27 who had come and brought their, their question to him. Um, and then Jesus kind of throws it in their face in verse 10 when he says, haven't you read the scriptures? And he's going to quote here from the 118th Psalm that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so Jesus just quotes straight from scripture to say, uh, this is what uh, scripture has always said was going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, you folks were going to end up rejecting the, the, the Messiah, the one that God sent. Um, but even in rejection, he is going to God's going to make him to be the cornerstone. And you think about when you're building a house or some kind of a physical structure, the, the cornerstone is like it, it's the most important part because it then sets the the, the 
the staging for everything else. Everything yeah. else is measured by it. Uh, everything else is drawn from that. And that's one of the purposes that Jesus himself serves. Everything is, is built on and is drawn from him. If you don't have a cornerstone, you don't have a building. You don't. these times. Yeah. Um, and of course, that, that imagery there of, of the cornerstone, uh, Peter will quote that in his epistle, and it's used in other places as well. And actually, even this idea of stones, we might ought to want to keep it in mind for when we get to chapter 13, and Jesus is going to talk about the destruction of, of the temple, and he's going to talk there about uh, no stone being left unturned. Mm -hmm. the, the response of these guys in, after hearing this parable is verse 12. They were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Well, how yeah. percep perceptive you are. Very sharp. Yeah. Uh, so they left him and they went away. Yeah. This is not, it doesn't mean they're, they're leaving for good. They're just leaving for a season to plot their next move because they realize, all right, this, we can't just up and arrest him right now. That's going to create a, a terrible scene. We're going to have to work this and manipulate this. So they'll be back. Well, Jesus just got through telling this parable about how there were, you know, if this parable is veiled to some people and they're kind of unsure about, hmm, well, who's who in this parable and on and on. And then Jesus, you know, he, he in the parable, he's explaining how there, there's these religious leaders that are going to persecute, you know, prophets mm -hmm. and then the beloved son. What, what he's essentially done is he set them up to where they're just going to prove him right. Right. If they arrest him right then, they're gonna like that's gonna show his testimony and his parable is true and reveal everything behind the parable yeah. to those who maybe don't fully understand. But they understood that. Yeah. So I don't think that's why they did it. And I think the parable too highlights the the problem that the Pharisees have and the problem that I guess everybody has when they sin, which is that they kind of they want to be preeminent. They mm -hmm. they want to be. Uh, like it says, they want the inheritance. I think that that verse really stood out to me yeah. about how oh, if we kill the son, we'll get the inheritance. Yeah. Well, what's the inheritance? That's sitting at the right hand of God. Yeah. And that's what they want. They want to be in Jesus' seat. So much of of the problem with with the Pharisees and others was there what there were motivations of like greed and self gain and self um, exaltation uh, that 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 underlied a lot of of what they said and what they did. And uh, yeah, and not just the fact that Jesus told this parable, um, you know, was was rebuking them, and and they realized, oh, we better not, we better not do this right now because he just got done talking about us. But I think probably even more stinging would be him quoting that scripture at him, yeah. quoting them Psalm one eighteen. Oh, yeah, uh, it did say that, didn't it? Yeah, <laughs> we 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 better not do that right now. Yeah, um, yeah, we so, will end up on the wrong side of prophecy if we do this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, so, again, we'll, let's see if we can manipulate and figure a way around that prophecy, <laughs> and uh, yeah, not make it be so obvious that we are that that's talking about us. <laughs> let's have Rome do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, don't spoilers get ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so they leave and go away for a time. Um, verse thirteen. Jesus is still here in this same area. Seemingly, this is all the same day. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talks. So, all right. So we we have the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. That that was this first cluster. They're going to go away for a time. Let's send the Pharisees back over there. He's had lots of encounters with them. And then the Herodians. And I think we've seen the Herodians at least one other time in Mark. Uh, and these are uh, Jews that were extremely devoted to Herod and to, mm -hmm. to the Herods, the Herodian family. Um, and they're coming with a specific intent. And that is, let's see if we can catch him uh, in, in some words. So verse 14. They came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and that you don't care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, I just got done preaching a sermon uh, in which I use this passage as the introduction to talk about um, it, it's not fun to get trapped in what I would consider kind of a no-win question. Yeah, um, it's a loaded question. It is a very loaded question because this, on the surface, it goes one of two ways. If Jesus says, 
uh, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes to Caesar, then you're on the wrong side of the Romans. And he's, there's a very good chance he's going to get thrown in prison for that. If he, on the other hand, says, oh yeah, you ought to pay your taxes to Caesar, then the Jews and all of the people who are following Jesus, they're going to say, whoa, well, what's this all yeah. about? I thought you come to, to you know, take over Rome and to establish your kingdom, and we hate the Romans. Um, yeah. So it's kind of a, again, there's a, there's, there's a no-win uh, answer to this if you just give a simple yes or a no. And it must be said... That like in James, it says that we're to be slow to speak. Mm-hmm. I think I don't think that means that we talk slower than. I think it means that we like I, one of my uh, one of the guys I watch uh, on YouTube. His name is Jordan Peterson. He's like a counselor, um, and anytime he, he he gets himself in a lot of debates and stuff online, right? And he'll give like a before he gives his response. There's like a three second pause where he you know waits for them to finish. Mm-hmm. If they've gonna, if they're gonna add anything else, and he kind of sits on what they just said before he responds, and if there's you know if that silence is just a vacuum, then he responds and he's kind of stays cool throughout that, and I think that's probably how we should all kind of operate because we don't need to be especially in situations like this where we sense okay, you know these people maybe are you know there's a little bit of tension here we shouldn't jump on that tension and our, our temptation can be oh I got to fill this this uncomfortable awkward silence real quick with with an answer right now yeah you know just give it a minute breathe on it think about it because i i think uh th- they knew that this would be a lot of pressure and they were hoping that jesus would just answer one way or the other right right yeah. well and and jesus is he is so good at at these scenarios and i, I wish i had even you know a percent of his, you know, smoothness in these in these cases to know yeah. exactly how to diffuse the situation, and Jesus doesn't come across as being adversarial, mm-hmm. um, and and it's a reasoned answer. It makes sense. It kind of just diffuses the situation entirely. Um, I mean, he is the word. He is the order. The yeah. reason. The logic. Yeah. So of course he's able to handle things reasonably. Yeah. Well, let's notice his response, verse fifteen. But knowing their hypocrisy, so once again, Jesus, he, he's able to discern things inwardly that others may not. You know, they came saying such flowery and nice things. Oh, teacher, we know that you're, you're such a true teacher. You, I'm sure they said it exactly like this. care about people's opinions. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's 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 it's, it's the cliched, you know, villain in the movie or the cartoon that comes along and you know talks in such a disingenuous way. Mr. Smith, (laughs) you are the chosen one. Oh, or like Scar and Lion King. Oh, little Simba, you and your daddy. (laughs) Uh, Um, But Jesus is able to see all that. Uh, He sees right through it all, and he said to them, "Why do you put me to the test?" Bring me a denarius, which of course was a, a, a coin, yeah. um, and, and let me look at it. And so they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and whose inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Boom. And they marveled at him. Yeah, man. Um, there's just not... not well, I mean... What do you say? I mean, I know what to say. What do you say? When their motivations are nefarious, just grab a denarius. Oh man, <laughs> you want to cut that from the chat? Yeah, you, you're you're looking to like <laughs> get you some intellectual property so you can make T-shirts or something out of that. <laughs> um, but go on to our store www. This is not a store. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there's the acknowledgement that okay, yeah. um, hey fellas, look th- those roads that you're walking on. Yeah, who paid for those roads? Mm-hmm. Uh, Caesar. Yeah. Um, these any uh, I mean, the other things that would have been you know in existence at that point. I don't know what kind of water system they had or so forth. But like, hey, the, the, Caesar made that possible and makes it possible for you to go about day by day. And so you, you need to acknowledge that. Doesn't mean you have to like. 
you know, what Caesar stands for. Yeah. Um, and there's a good lesson here for us. You know, we get frustrated at things that our government does and and even like programs and things that either we disagree with. And so obviously there's even, you know, there's been the funding of things that we would consider immoral, you know, the funding of things like, you know, Planned Parenthood and things of that nature. And, you know, so, well, I don't want to pay money to the government. Okay, I understand about all that. But Jesus is helping us to see that, um, you know, those those roads that we're driving on, it, it's a lot nicer to drive on a road that's got some blacktop on it than it is to drive on, you know, dirt yeah. or grass. Trust me, you don't want to drive out on the dirt and you get do stuck not. in a ditch. You and know. Then everybody on the, in, in the foyer makes fun of you for the rest of your life. Just yeah. don't do it. But there's... <laughs> There's, uh, that's special. Enjoy that, Lakeside listeners. But um, the people that, uh, I, I had a conversation with someone who, you know, they're, they're professing Christian. They're not actually a Christian, but they're professing Christianity. And they're talking about, uh, you know, I, I, I want to submit to the government, at, but, uh, and, and really and truly their motivation was they just wanted to, to do illegal things and mm. keep keep on doing illegal things. But they're like, I want to submit to the government, but they're just so wicked. They do all these sinful things and on and on. And I was like, well, Jesus said to render under Caesar what is Caesar's. We talked about in Romans 13 mm-hmm. about how the, and that's definitely a, a, a tie-in passage here with what Jesus is saying here in right. Mark. But uh, the Roman government, were they not, Hunting down and killing disciples, sure, you know, sure. That's later on, yep. So that teaching was going on during that time, especially right. Romans thirteen. So it's like, I mean, if ever there was a wicked government, there you go. And then the teaching was not we rebel against them and rail against them, right? And and don't pay your taxes. Our situation today is not even remotely like. The, the, the governments and regimes that first century Christians were living under. Yeah, it's not nearly as bad. So yeah. you can't really say like, oh, well, I'm just going to do drugs anyway because oh, Roman 13 doesn't apply in America because America is so mean. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're not murdering Christians, so... Yeah. Yeah, Romans 13 still applies. Yeah. It does. Well, and th- but then the follow-up to that, you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, um, but since those things are, are made possible by your, your government... The, the 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 continued extension of that is those things are actually made possible by God. Yeah, God is the one who placed uh, the, the government into place and ordained it as an institution that you know has some authority and has vested it with some authority. Um, and so, actually, then what those things are is is we're, we're rendering to God uh, as well, and yeah. God is is deserving of the honor and all the things that go along with uh, with rendering to God the things that are that are His. Yeah, and I think this passage also pretty cleanly uh, destroys the idea of a theocracy of mm. Christians, you know, of a, he, he, I think Jesus is drawing a line between the, the government and, and religion here to a degree. Not to say that we can't make informed decisions as Christians about issues, but just to say that we're, we're not trying to overthrow Caesar's kingdom to institute some kind of religious order on earth. Yeah. Um, I think I think that's pretty important to understand too. Well, uh, Jesus just he, he just shuts it down. Yeah. Uh, they marvel at him. Uh, there's it, it, it's amazing. There's nothing nothing said in response here. Yeah. Uh, it's just okay. We send in this this second battalion of people, and I imagine they're kind of just nodding and kind of like fake smiling, like okay, yeah. <laughs> and so like so so here's here's group number two. They come in. They make their attempt, and now. Okay, we're just going to sheepishly go off here into the corner. Now let's send in round three. Jesus Verse- is handling like every denomination of Jew at this point. He is. He this, is. This is this is literally like a martial arts movie when all the factions are coming at the like Bruce Lee guy and he's just pop, 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 yeah. just blocking everything and kicking people off the screen and this is pretty much what Jesus is doing right yeah. here. Well, and it's 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 kind of what we talked about last week. It, it it is amazing to me that Jesus knows he's nearing the end of his life. This is he's about to die. He's about to be delivered into the hands of lawless men, and yet he is in control of everything. Yeah, everything is so deliberate and measured in what he's doing and in what yeah. he's saying, and uh, he's in complete control. And it, yeah. that's amazing to me. He's just kind of showing his authority for 
on top of all these religious leaders, quote unquote, that are trying to, you know, trying to stump him or yeah. what you can imagine. They probably debated with one another about these things and, oh, well, let me go look into that a little bit more. And they've mm-hmm. been going on and on. But, but Jesus is just, boom, he just handles them, handles them, yep. handles them. And they just go away feeling defeated every time. Yep. Well, so this third wave that comes in is the Sadducees, verse 18. The Sadducees came to him, and we get this little note here that the Sadducees are those who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but he leaves no child, then the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, here's the scenario. Here's the hypothetical circumstance and scenario that we want to paint for you. Verse 20. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and fourth, fifth, sixth, verse 22, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Very tired, I would imagine. Yeah. Verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven all had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And I love this. You are quite wrong. Jesus, here's our authority for being able to tell people they're wrong. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, because he does it twice. (laughs) Twice in this passage, he starts by telling them, don't you know this is why you're wrong? And then he explains it, and then he just punctuates it with, you are quite wrong. This is like the opposite of the compliment sandwich that we've talked about sometimes. <laughs> yeah. When like you compliment them, give them the hard stuff, and then compliment them again. Jesus just basically insults them, yeah. explains why they're dumb, yeah. and then insults them a second time. <laughs> well, this, this, uh, the Sadducees are obviously taking a different route than the Pharisees or some of the other groups would have, because the other groups, like the Pharisees, they did believe that there was going to be a resurrection. Yeah. The Sadducees, for whatever reason, did not. Uh, and they had some other peculiarities. Uh, they had some issues about, uh, about angels, another passage tells us. Um, and so they figure, okay, we're going we're gonna to press him about that. And yeah. we're gonna, here's a great scenario that there's just no way he's going to be able to answer this. The resurrection stuff was probably their like, hobby writing subject because yes. like, you know, that's what makes them stand out. Like we're, we're the Sadducees and we don't believe in yeah. resurrection. Yeah, well, I mean, the yeah. fact that Mark just notes that and just says they're the ones who say there's no resurrection, it's clear it would have just been a known thing that this was... This this was their little you know uh, badge that they wore around. I don't understand what they're doing all this for then. Do what? Why are they being religious? Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> That's weird. I mean, it's fine. I mean, I I understand that they don't, but it's just like why? Yeah. Um. Well, the 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 whole scenario that they painted here of the woman with the seven husbands and all right, well, here's the stumper, Jesus. How's this going to work? If she's had seven husbands, I mean, well, which one gets to have her in this so-called resurrection? Who gets to be known as, as, as husband and wife here? I guess someone might call this a hypothetical hand grenade. It is a hypothetical hand grenade. <laughs> um, and it is designed to just kind of blow up the whole conversation and just discredit Jesus. There's, yeah. there's, no, there's no quest here for truth. They don't even believe in the resurrection. So. They don't. And yeah. so, yes, yeah, so for them to even be asking about that, well, it doesn't even make sense. There's hypocrisy just on your... Just in the question itself, yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, there's no there's no desire here for truth, and we saw that back at the end of chapter eleven. That that was the problem. Those folks that came and asked their question then, they weren't interested in in knowing what was right. They were just looking to make Jesus look like a fool. And Jesus uses scripture. He points to uh, you know, points to the example of uh, Moses with the burning bush back in the book of Exodus to point out about how. You know, God is not a God of, of the dead. When he said, I am the God of Abraham, well, he said that about guys who'd been dead for you know, hundreds of years at that yeah, point. Not I was. Yeah, I am, present tense. Yeah. Um, the, might ought to make just a note about verse 25, when Jesus says that when they rise from the dead, uh, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Uh, first of all, one of the things that, that gets, I think, misstated about that passage is that... Um, 
we will not, people will read that verse and say, well, then we're not going to have uh, a recognition of marriages in heaven. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Uh, I'm not persuaded by that. Uh, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you're not going to get married in heaven. Yeah. Like when you go to heaven, we're not, I mean, if, you're, if you die a single person, you're not going to find you a, a single woman in heaven and get no, married. No, man, come on. That was my last hope. <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you would find a good Christian woman there for sure. <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's what Jesus is saying. And so I, I, I'm, I'm not persuaded fully by the idea that in heaven there, there will be no cognizance whatsoever of, of the husband and wife relationships that existed here on this earth. Now, yeah. if somebody wants to ask me, well, what if you do have someone who maybe they're spouse, and we're not, maybe we're not talking about something crazy like seven husbands, yeah. but what if like just you, you had one spouse that died and you remarried lawfully, um, well, how would that work in heaven? And the answer is, I don't know. Yeah. And what I'm content to say is to say what Jesus says, and that is, I don't know the power of God, verse 24. Yeah. I'm going to trust that God's going to sort all of that out. Yeah. And everything's going to work out fine. Um, I'm not going to get all Mormon and start coming up with a bunch of theories about how polyamorous marriages work in yeah, heaven. Yeah. It's it's just not it, God's going to sort that out. It's like it's like when people ask the question about, you know, what what if uh, you know, what if I have a loved one who who on judgment day gets sent to hell and I'm in heaven and I have, you know, how am I going to be happy in heaven knowing that my loved one is not there and they're in hell? And how do I reconcile that with what the Bible says about that there's going to be no tears in heaven? And the answer is, it's going to be fun. God's going to take care of it. Yep. I'm just going to trust what His Word says, and I'm going to trust that He has the power to sort all of that out. And again, I know we desire and we want to have like specific answers to those things, but especially when it comes to things that pertain to eternity yeah. and how the afterlife works, we just don't have a lot of information. Yeah. And most of the time people ask questions like what you're saying. Now we're kind of off on a different range because this isn't really like what the Sadducees were asking. No, no. They no. weren't like, man, I don't understand. I, I want to understand this more. Like I really want to know. You know, It was more of just like how are we going to make this Jesus guy look dumb or bad yeah. or you know, on and on. Whereas like a lot of people ask that and, and you know, I respect their intentions. It's a sincere curiosity. I just love talking about heaven anyway. So sure. I mean, I'll entertain it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? definitely. And and that's fine. And I enjoy yeah. doing that as well. And it's good. And the other thing out of verse 25 that, that gets misstated is when Jesus says uh, that in heaven um, they're not married or given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. Lots of people have read that verse and they come away with the conclusion that when we get to heaven, we become angels. Nah, man. That, that is not so. Angels are a completely different order of created being. Mm-hmm. What Jesus just means is he means we're going to be spiritual creatures in heaven. Yeah. That's that's the difference. It's no we're no longer going to be physical beings. We'll be like the angels in that we will also be spiritual beings uh, in heaven. And whether that passage is trying to say something about the fact that angels don't get married or not, um, I'm not sure. Maybe they don't. Um, but the point is in heaven it's just uh, going to be different. It's just going to be different. It's a different set of rules. And just, uh, everybody who's listening to this chapter chat that really wants a definitive answer, just enjoy our meandering around this because this is all you're going to get. That's right. That's right. <laughs> like and and hey, here's the takeaway. Let's just like be the kind of Christians God wants us to be, so we can go to heaven, and then we'll. F- figure all this out and we'll get to see how it all works. Yep, but we have one promise for you. It's just going to be different, so just deal with it. That's all That's all we can say. That's the only certain thing we can say. So Jesus shuts these guys down. These, these Worth highlighting, verse 24. The, the problem is the ignorance of the Scriptures and yes. a lack of respect for God. I think that's important too. Like, Real quick before we move on, just that's the problem any time that there's some issue with false teaching or, uh, you know, uh, a wrong concept of religion is it inevitably comes down to a lack for a lack of knowledge of the scriptures and a lack of zeal and love for God every single time. Yeah, yeah. I think that's important to say too. Well, there's no uh, again. Jesus ends that discussion in 27, and there's no, you know, there's no rebuttal. There's no, you know, rejoinder. There's no follow up. Like he shuts them down. However. Verse 28 shows us somebody who kind of comes out of that same ilk, that same crowd, and he has a different uh, attitude. I just wonder, is everybody just gathered around? 
watching this? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I picture just kind of all these different groups of people, and it's all kind of clustered around, and Jesus is maybe just kind of working his way. Th- Again, the temple complex was a huge area, and so maybe Jesus yeah. is kind of working his way. Walking along, around. people yeah. are calling out to him and yeah. such things and engaging him in these little skirmishes. Yeah, that's that's, that's, you know, that's just kind of the way that I've pictured it. Probably. Uh, but out of those crowds, verse 28, one of the scribes come up to him, and they and he heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked Jesus the question, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, I'm going to say that this guy was sincere in his question. Yes. And the reason I know that is because of the way that Jesus engages the question. Yeah. Not to mention the question itself is just really good. And it's, it's a good op- question. It's open-ended. Yes. It's not meant to lead or, or be like a loaded question or anything. He really just wants to know. That's right. That's right. And whenever sincere questioners come to Jesus, you can just you can sense the way he engages the question is just it's different. So also, hold on. Let's pay attention here too because it says the reason that he did that was because Jesus answered them well. Yes. That means that if we do the same thing, I think people will notice. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm not saying let's go out and just drum up a bunch of debates in public, but I'm saying when when religious conversation comes up and we've got answers that are just ready from the scriptures and we say. You know, we, well, this is what the Bible says about this. Then that can sometimes in my life it's happened where people will come up to me later and be like, "Man, well, you were saying this about that, and I thought that was I've never really thought about it that way before." Yeah. You know, uh, had a guy who identifies as just a pagan, uh, debated with him for a while, and he came back to me later and had a lot to say and was saying, "Man, those are some really good answers, and I never really thought about this." So you know, we we gotta we gotta see those opportunities where we get challenged as opportunities, not as this gruesome thing, but yeah. like someone's challenging our faith, they're letting us give an answer. We get to we get to try and, and do we get our, our swing at doing what Jesus did here in this chapter. Right. And and not only when we're ready does that then, you know, have an effect on others and they see, hey, that, that might be a good guy to go and talk with. But also Jesus handles himself, you know, in a tactful, in a civil yeah. manner. When people see that, hey, I I'd like to go talk to that guy a little bit more. Yeah, uh, I, I, the way he engaged that question with that person over there, that could have been really volatile. But but he didn't handle it in a volatile manner. Um, I, I I'd like to, I like the cut of his jib. That's the humility aspect yeah. that makes people feel comfortable to talk to you about things like you know life and death, spiritual uh, right and wrong, sin and righteousness, things like that. Yeah, that are usually really heavy, uh, that have become taboo in our culture. The, the way we take that taboo away is with humility. Yeah, well, Jesus, he answers well. And actually, this, this makes me think of that passage back a few chapters back uh, where the people, the observation was, and they said, he does all things well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's just one of those areas where he does things well. The question, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answers, verse 29. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus, of course, is quoting just directly out of the Old, Old Testament. And um, th- this is, you can, you, you can say that um, really much, if not all, of the law is summed up in those commandments because um, it, it deals with our vertical relationship with God, and then our horizontal relationship with, with our fellow man and how we uh, treat and respond in both of those directions. Yeah. The scribe said to him, verse 32, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself, that it is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is amazing for a scribe uh, to be saying these sorts of things uh, and to recognize that this idea of our love for God and our love for our fellow man, that that is the most core and fundamental thing. The fact that he says that that is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices you could offer, it's amazing for a guy like this to say that. Because for so many of the folks who were just tied to that Old Testament way of, of doing things, well, that was the most important stuff, the offerings and the sacrifices. How yeah. many times do you read in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, when people would do wrong, God's people would do wrong, and they thought the solution was, 
well, let's just go to the temple and offer more sacrifices. Yeah. And God has to say, I don't want your sacrifices. What I want is I want your heart. Yeah. I want you to love me. Yes. I want you to care about me. I want you to treat your fellow man right. And then we can to... go through the motions and do the right things. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, all of that stuff is empty and meaningless if the love is not there uh, present first. And that, of course, is a note that sounded yeah. continually throughout the rest of the New Testament. We in our Wednesday night class, of course, just got done mm -hmm. studying 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul said, you, know, you can do all kinds of amazing things for God and for the kingdom, but if it's not done with love, I mean, you're just yeah. you're making noise and it's nothing. <laughs> Religion doesn't produce faith. Faith that faith produces religion. Yes, that's 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 the what order of things. Uh, if your relationship to God is broken, you don't you know sit in a confessional and just confess your sins, or you don't uh, even just coming forward to an invitation uh, that we hold. Uh, mm -hmm. If you do all that and you have no intention of repenting, or you haven't changed your heart to to love God rather than your sin then that's all in vain. Right. He, does, he said, I don't delight in sacrifices. For us, I think that means, I don't, he, he, what he's saying essentially is, I don't want your religion unless you have the right heart. Yep. Yeah. That's so. exactly right. Um, and there's this, him quoting, Jesus quoting here the, uh, you know, the, the two great commandments. Here. This is not the only time he does that. He actually does that some other times uh, throughout his ministry, and that's because it's just so core to everything that we are. So verse 34, when Jesus saw that the scribe answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And that's, man, that's, a, that's such a good compliment. Uh, to say about somebody, it's a little, bit, it's a little backhanded though, because it's like, but you're not there yet. You're not, but yeah. he, he's, I, but I think he's saying you're, you're on yes. the right track, my friend. Yes, absolutely. Uh, especially in comparison to your all of your fellow scribes and the the folks that you normally run around with, you buddy, you're you're, you're cut from a different piece of cloth. What a relief that would be to Jesus to uh, this scribe comes up and he's like, he's getting ready to just you know wreck yet another scribe, yeah. and then this guy's like. No, seriously, and he can tell yeah. he's like, good. <laughs> and, and, and this is, and this is, and it's good to have moments like this because it reminds us that, again, not all of the scribes, not all of the Pharisees, not all of these sects were just full of villainous, evil people. You yeah. know, Nicodemus came to Jesus um, in the night because he, he cared. So there's a guy yeah. who was a Pharisee, but like he, he saw the truth. Yeah, um, and in our evangelism, there's. I mean, it, it really is probably one in a hundred, but there's there's one in a hundred people that they want to get to the truth, and yeah. they'll, that they'll dig in to try to find it. Yeah, and we need to remember that, and we need not to jump to those kinds of conclusions. Well, nobody cares. Everybody's insincere. Everybody's wrapped up in their denominational thinking, and is never going to come out of that. No, or they're, they're or they're, they're too people. entrenched in their sin. Yeah, or whatnot. That's right. Um, and so that one in a hundred, as long as there's one in however many billion people are on the earth, we still have to keep looking and keep working. Yeah. So he tells the man, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like just yeah. fail, 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 fail. And now, you know, here's this guy. Uh, this is the only, this is basically, the message was sent to the rest of them. Don't come asking Jesus questions unless you're going to have the right kind of heart like this guy did. Yeah, and I think the rest of them realize, yeah, we don't have that kind of heart, and so we're just not going to. And I'm, I really am so grateful for this last example because, like you said, it's like adversarial encounter after adversarial encounter, where Jesus is just has a totally different energy than all these guys. Yeah, and he's just, you know, he's just basically just handling them, keeping it short, blunt, to the point, saying what he needs to say to get them to just, you know, be just handled, and as a result of that, it kind of culls the herd. Mm -hmm. For this this one guy that we see, this is the right attitude. And it, and for me, I think that Mark, the reason that Mark included this, is to just highlight this is what happens when someone interacts with Jesus with the same kind of energy that Jesus has, which is looking for God and, yeah. and doing the right thing for the Father. Well, after having this good encounter with the scribe, what the, I'm saying is Jesus is not just this master debater that's just crushing everyone. You yeah, know, that's not why he came. No, no. This is this is. Um, uh, yeah, like I said, this this leaves a good taste in our our, our mouths after several um, bad encounters. Uh, he mm -hmm. does then in the next couple little sections here. He does want to say some things about the scribes in general, the things that they teach and the things that they they do. So verse thirty five, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, "How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David?" 
Okay, so the, the scribes are the guys who were the, the, the copyists of the law, but many times that also meant they were the teachers of the law. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're sitting down just writing this stuff all day long, you're probably going to learn it yeah. just for, by virtue of writing it all the time. <laughs> so they would then say that the Christ, the Messiah, was going to be the son of David. And that was true. Yes. Uh, that absolutely was true. David himself, verse 36, in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, this Messiah. He calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now this is a quotation from one of the most important of all the Psalms, the 110th Psalm, uh, because it is a messianic psalm. And so Jesus asked the question, how could David was the king? How would David refer to someone who was his son as being Lord? You know, if it's his son, well, he's he's beneath him. You know, in this case, Jesus, the the Messiah, was not going to be like his actual son. He would be like a a great, 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 however many great grandson. Um, But still, he's the king. Why would he be calling him him son? and that's because uh, he's a different kind of Lord. Uh, yeah. He is uh, he is the <laughs> Lord, uh, the, the Messiah who was coming to set all things right, the putting the enemies under under his feet. Um, Jesus, is, he's trying to get folks to start looking at him in the way that Scripture had always been pointing him to be, mm-hmm. uh, and that is to be the one that was sent by God as uh, as the Messiah. He continues on with the, the, the scribe talk in verse 38. In his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and they like greetings in the marketplaces, and they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, and they devour widows' houses, and for a pretense they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This has echoes of what Jesus had said about the Pharisees back in the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. about you know they like to do their prayers in the street corners, and they do their alms to be seen by others. And apparently the Pharisees did not have the market cornered on that kind mm-hmm. of pretentious religion. Uh, The scribes did it too uh, and these sorts of things. And Jesus says, all right, those guys stand up in the synagogue and they teach things. I mean, what he just taught there in verses 35, 36, and 37, I mean, they were teaching the Scripture. They're up there quoting Scripture and they're reading it to you. But be careful that just because what you hear them teach in the synagogue is not necessarily representative of how they live their lives because they live in such a way that just says, look at me. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I'm great. I'm something uh, to be admired and to be, um, you know, held in high esteem. Uh, Jesus says they're going to receive the greater condemnation. Like he said about the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, they have their reward. Uh, they do. If they're looking for, you know, some kind of temporary ooh and ah, uh, they're going to get it. Yeah. Um, but they've got something else coming for them later that is not going to be all that great. And that's called greater condemnation. Yes. Yeah. Um, the last little bit here uh, in the chapter is a great little uh, story, uh, and it has to do with this widow woman. Verse 41, Jesus then sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. But then a poor widow came, and she put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow, she has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. The disciples are probably thinking, well, well, how so, Lord? She just put in a penny's worth of money. Is this like the fish and the loaves thing you did before? Did that become more money when you put it in there? Did it multiply? Yeah. Verse 44, here's here's the explanation. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Yeah. And so we try to picture this scene of, of how the, the treasury worked at the temple. There was actually a series of, of boxes that people would put their various offerings in. So here's a, here's, a, here's a sin offering box, or here's a Thanksgiving offering box, and I'm going to then put my, put my money into that, and that's going to be, you know, that, that, that's my sacrifice that I'm, that I'm making and that I'm giving and my contribution that I'm, that I'm making. And you can imagine Pharisees and others who were well off, you know, coming in and just, just 
change. Yeah. You know, pouring in all kinds of, of, of coins and, and change. And then this woman comes up and she drops her, you know, clink, <laughs> you know, a uh, couple little little coins. Uh, and it would not have garnered nearly as much attention as others would oh, have. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm just picturing her just kind of getting beat around in the crowd, barely able to walk through, you yeah. know. Nobody's looking at her and she just kind of bunk, bunk. Yeah. Well, when Jesus talked just in the previous verses about the kind of you know pretentious, showy forms of religion, you know th- that that probably was the case many times when people brought their offerings. Yeah. Just uh, <laughs> <big> offerings. <laughs> yes. Everyone, take notice. This is a one hundred dollar bill I'm dropping into the collection plate. Um, <laughs> like like the the guys are going around doing the collection in our services, and a guy just like loudly just like. <clears throat> yeah, and then he just like pulls out like a huge, like a giant check and just <laughs> <laughs> sets it in that there. Publisher's clearinghouse check. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And th- but that that that, that probably was uh, the norm then. But this woman comes up meek. Um, there's no there's no pretense here, and she just has the desire to do what she can. And that's the lesson from this woman that Jesus wants to convey, and that is doing what we can. Um, like the parable of the talents. Yeah. Um, wh- wh- whatever you can do for the kingdom, um, just do it. And I don't think Jesus is advocating that you have to give, you know, if, when it comes to a, maybe a contribution of a, a charitable act or even, you know, the contribution to the church. He's not advocating you have to put in everything you own and every dollar in your bank account. No. But it is the idea that, like, what I can do, I am going to do it. I think Jesus is just appreciating her attitude yeah. and why she's doing what she's doing. And yeah. I think she ultimately shows more of a faith and reverence for God that He's going to take care of her yeah. than these uh, religious elites. That's right. She has the kind of heart that uh, kingdom people uh, are just have. Um, Another cool thing, if we make it to heaven, when we make it to heaven, mm-hmm. are we going to see this woman? Yeah. Too. Well, yeah. how cool would that be to find out that she became a Christian later? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, Jesus is like, oh, this is the woman from the Mark story that gave the two pennies, and there she is adorned in glory. That'd be pretty awesome. Yeah. I would hope so. I mean, if her heart here was representative of her whole life, um, then I would have no other reason to believe that she would have become a Christian yeah. you know, upon learning the the gospel in the days and weeks that followed. Maybe it's weird, but I just think about stuff like that. Yeah. You know, these minor characters that were like, oh, you know, they were just kind of there. That'd be, it'd just be humbling to just... That's the widow with the two mites. Yeah. There she is. It's like she'll maybe carry, have a little little name badge or a placard <laughs> hanging around her neck. I made it in the scriptures. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just yeah. kidding. I'm just kidding. She, I'm, I'm the lady from Mark 12. She would not be like that. Um well, that, so that, that concludes Jesus' time here in the temple uh, with all of the encounters and the teaching. That doesn't mean, though, that he's done with the temple because in chapter 13 he is going to say some things about the temple uh, that will most certainly not garner him any more um, love from his enemies. In fact, it's going to really provide the impetus that they need to pursue his arrest and his trial, and ultimately his his death. And so that begins next week in chapter 13. Any other thoughts on chapter 12? This is a big chapter. They'll do it. All right. Do you, I have, do you love I anybody? Do, I, do, I do have love for everyone, though. Okay. Just want to make sure you got that in. All <laughs> right. Look forward to talking about the 13th chapter next week. <laughs>